What's up? You're listening to The Long Game, and I'm your host, David Lee Kim, co-founder of Omniscient Digital. In this episode, we chat with Kay He. Kay is the founder of Rad Reads, an online academy that helps high performers live a productive and examined life. Rad Reads provides guides, coaching, and trainings for over 50,000 professionals to help them gain back free time, scale their impact, and make their little dent in the universe. Before founding Rad Reads, Kay spent 15 years working on Wall Street and was one of the youngest managing directors at BlackRock. He's been called Oprah for Millennials by CNN, The Wall Street Guru by Bloomberg, and his work has been featured in The Wall Street Journal, TEDx, Barron's, Time Magazine, and Quartz. This conversation is going to take a detour from our regularly scheduled programming of content, SEO, marketing, and tech. We do cover the usual suspects like how Kay founded Rad Reads, his transition from Wall Street to being a full-time creator, his tips on productivity and his concept of 10K work, and how you can make the most of your time. But we also talk about introspection and questioning the narratives, particularly the ones in your head that might be blockers to your growth or success, and the impact of coaching. I really hope that this podcast presents you with some new ideas and questions to chew on that might help you lead a better life personally and professionally. Here's my conversation with Kay He. Kay, welcome to The Long Game. Thank you. It's great to be here, my friend. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a long time coming. I was just reviewing some of our our emails and like in preparation for this conversation and like doing some research on you. And I realized we met just a little over a year ago. I don't know if you recall, but like over email, June twenty twenty two, got to meet in person, September twenty twenty two, got some good deal at Phnom Penh Noodle Shack in yeah. Long Beach. And I want to share with you like that that meeting was very meaningful to me. Because, at, and I'm sure you get this a lot and, and folks might share similar feelings, but you're kind of like where I want to be when I'm your age. Like you go surfing every day, uh, you have time with your family, you work like, I, last night we spoke like 20 hours a week, maybe a little bit more every now and then, maybe 30 now, yeah. And one of the things you said was, I could make more money, but that would mean not surfing or spending as much time with my family. And I was like, oh my God, this, you hear this shit on Twitter this guy's actually living it and making those trade-offs and i thought that was it was fascinating right to see that in practice and you embody that and and you also drove to me to long beach from manhattan beach which is on a good day 20 30 minute drive i don't know if you had any traffic on that day but i was like okay this this guy's really like built out of life that he wants and just wanted to tell you like that was meaningful to see you modeling that type of life thank you man and that was a really special day for me because the bond that we have one of the many is uh, being a Cambodian American professional. And, you know, I, one of the really unintended consequences of, you know, the success that I've had as a thought leader, in, I fucking hate the word influencer, but <laughs> whatever, whatever you want to put, kind of creator, um, is that one of the greatest things that have happened is that I have met all of these Cambodians. And I'm, I mean, I'm the oldest. There are a few that have been older than me. But I'm the oldest, and, and they reach out to me. They use the term of respect, bong, uh, yeah. and it's just such an. I'm like, we could talk about my relationship to my Cambodian identity, which is a very long and bizarre, confusing thing for me. 
oh, dare I say, non-existent at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and so thank you for, you know, reminding me of that kinship that we have, that brotherhood that we have, and for me to discover more about myself. And those were some delicious fucking noodles. So like, oh, hell yeah. yeah I love that. We, we do need to go. Yeah. Can, I, can I just add to that point on the modeling, the behavior, though? Is that yeah. there's this great story. It's, uh, it's this quick uh, uh, comment that Aziz makes about Frank Ocean. So if people don't know who these are, Aziz and Zara, famous uh, Indian-American comedian, uh, had a bunch of Netflix shows and all that. And Frank Ocean, he is a R&B crooner, very, very headlining Coachella-type level of fame. But the thing about Frank Ocean is that he's really, really uh, a recluse. Um, hmm. He doesn't do interviews. He doesn't tour that much. He releases albums whenever he feels like it. Uh, and and so Aziz recounts this conversation he had with Frank. He's like, Frank, you're a legend. You, you, you're so famous. You're so talented. You, you, you don't do press. You only do tour when you want to tour. You only receive, release albums when you want to release albums. How do you do it? And Frank goes... Well, it's easy. You just got to be okay with making less money. Yeah. So it's like, it's so funny that you see that at so many different levels of society, right? Where Frank Ocean is a a hip hop icon and he's like, yeah, I've just decided to make less money. And so that's why I don't tour as much. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's going to be a theme in our conversation today, likely. Um, and, And going back to your your point on like our kind of Cambodian kinship. You're actually like the first Cambodian I've realized on a pod. So two Cambodians speaking to each other in a pod. Not sure if that's happened before, maybe at some point. Um, And you you used the phrase bong earlier. And for folks who aren't Cambodian listening, that's like uh, what we refer like to older siblings, like older brother, older sister, like bong. Um, Not not like a bong that you smoke. So just for folks who are listening. and yeah, you mentioned a little bit about that upbringing, like you have a winding road. So teenage K grew up New York City, child of immigrants. You, you've mentioned this on a couple of pods, uh, skinny, nerdy, socially awkward, wanted to be cool, wanted to be accepted, to be loved. And you realize that the answer was like status, power and money is how you how you're accepted. Yeah, they are. <laughs> I, I might have landed at that conclusion at some point in my life as well. But that led you to Wall Street, where you spent 15 years of your life. You became one of the youngest managing directors. Eight years ago, you left that life to focus on radreads.co full-time. Did I do that justice? Would you, would you add anything there? Uh, I think you, yeah, I think you're spot on. I would, I would add some color commentary that, uh, and you probably were getting there, that, that radreads is really, it's my voice. And it's my voice, it's writing, uh, podcasting, some videos, but it's really around this premise that we all can live these examined, intentional, and joyful lives, right? And what's always been fascinating to me, why I love this shit, is that we're going to talk about these questions of self-worth and of power, like needing power and, and fame and status and all that. And what I love about this is that I could, t- I could bring in a Frank Ocean story about this immediately and make yeah. it feel real versus like the Buddha. I could also talk about what the Buddha said about status, <laughs> but it's just not going to be as interesting to a lot of listeners, rightfully so, myself included. So Rad Reads has always been about kind of hooking people with, you know, playfulness, pop culture, mainstream topics, career, money, things that people always are thinking about, want to learn more about. 
but then pulling on that thread a little bit harder than everyone else does to get you to some of those juicier questions of what it means to lead a life well lived. I love that. And yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about Rad Reads. I, I think the latest number on your website was like 50,000 subscribers to the newsletter right now. And you cover like topics about money, productivity, happiness, and it's all in your voice. Like it's not some corporate brand or like some self-help guru saying like these generic things. You're like, it's all coming from your experience and like a lot of your, your introspection and you're very open about a lot of those things. And maybe you can share with the listeners a bit about the founding backstory and kind of how it's led to where it is now. And, and like you can talk about your podcast that, that you're focusing on now as yeah. well. So the backstory was, as you said, um, grew up child of, child of immigrants and just, I just wanted to belong. Right. I wanted to belong. I wanted to people to think I was cool. I wanted to get laid. I wanted to make money. And none of those things really seemed within reach for me. Uh, I graduated college and I, I graduated high school and I weighed 138 pounds. They always, my friends now, they always joke. They're like, you didn't have shoulders. You were just all <laughs> neck. Uh, I'm pretty fit now, but I, I was like 138 pounds. You know, that's like like that's not a lot <laughs> as a 21 year old, 18 year old male. So I kind of wanted all those things. And one thing that I had always was always very, again, I'm always careful to talk about these stories in hindsight because you can, you can just pretty them up and just like um, spruce them up uh, to fit the narrative. But I think that I had this like entrepreneurial knack and I just kind of always understood how hmm. different games were played. And so what do I mean by that? I was like, oh, everyone in my town is like doing babysitting and to make money. Uh, maybe you don't really waiter in your, I grew up in New York City. You don't really do like waitering as a teenager in, in the city, but they're doing like these odd jobs, like mostly around babysitting and things like that. And I'm like, why don't I just learn how to use a computer better than everyone else? And, uh, and I, I found some, I'm like, what skills are, I don't even know how I found this out, but I, I kept seeing that people wanted websites. And so I taught myself how to make websites and I was charging $20 an hour in, this is as a 16 year old in 1995, like 28 modems time. So you're making $20 an hour, that's probably like $40 an hour today. So imagine making $40 an hour cash as a 16 year old. And so it, was, it, wow. it, it wasn't, and my parents, like my parents taught work ethic, but they didn't know any of this stuff. And so I, I don't know, I just, I feel like I, I was very blessed. There's a saying that I heard someone say is, you can give someone resources. And my parents gave us like the bare resources to get an education, but you can't give someone resourcefulness. Mm. I think about that a lot with my kids because we have a, much more resources than my parents have. But I think the fact that my parents didn't have a lot of resources taught me resourcefulness. So to zoom, zoom back out, and I, I promise I'll answer the question about what Rad Reads is now, um, I think that I had a real knack of like understanding how games were, were played. And these, let's just call them business games at this point. And so, you know, oh, you want to do really well on Wall Street? Like, well, what does that take? You need to be, you need to work harder. You need to have a good, good, um, work ethic, uh, good relationships, uh, and you need people, you need to learn how to lead people, like you need to become a manager. So those were the three things that I was focused on for 14 years on Wall Street. And it sounds so like mid just to say it right out loud, but it's, people don't realize that. And when you realize that at 21, 
I wasn't a manager till I became, I was like 27, but I was already thinking about what am I going to be like as a manager? And I'm observing my manager. Is he good at this? Is he bad at that? And so it's like kind of like watching these games. So to answer your question, how did Rad Read start? I think once I left finance, I'm, I was kind of look, I was just in experimentation mode. And I think then I had made a decent amount of money. I always say like enough money that I didn't have to work for a couple of years, but I love expensive cities. So I would have to work for a long time. You know, I love expensive cities. Uh, I've lived in LA and New York. So I started just experimenting on different things. And one thing was this little rinky dink newsletter. This was in 2015 before Substack, even like before, remember tiny letter days? So oh, yeah. tiny letter. The tiny letter was like the the like the text file of of um, email newsletters. Like no formatting, nothing. Mailchimp eventually bought them. So I had the tiny letter. It was actually in Gmail, and I was just curating links because I thought it was interesting. So I found five links, and I sent them to friends, and I said, "Hey, these are cool articles." And to me, it was it was so simple because I was just on Twitter and they weren't on Twitter. So I was just <laughs> seeing what was trending on Twitter in my, and then I was just sharing it. So it was like, I always joke that my newsletter started as a Twitter arbitrage. Yeah. Um, so I send them this newsletter. This was uh, in May of 2015. So this was eight and a half years ago. Uh, and every week since I have sent a weekly newsletter since then. So it's 36 people in a blind BCC Gmail tiny letter mailchimp convert kit uh and so yeah we're we're right at fifty thousand right now have you ever missed a week i haven't missed a week and that spanned like two kids being born two trips around the world <laughs> uh really shitty wi-fi in southeast asia um but i did start to get burnt out and one summer i this was maybe three summers ago i went to every other weekend for the summer and then the following summer, I think I went every other weekend. And the following summer, I took the whole summer off. Mm. So that's maybe, I don't know, summer is what, t 10 weeks? So I probably took 20 weeks off in, in 400 weeks. Yeah. Yeah. But that was like an intentional thing. It wasn't yeah. like a week where you forgot or something. And like now, that. now I can't because we have sponsors. <laughs> so I, I literally, I'm like, I'm saying no to like $1,500 if I don't hit send. So I'm like, yeah. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get that 1500 bucks. Yeah. So the, the interesting thing to me about rad reads is, I mean, I, during some of my formative years, I was reading folks like Tim Ferriss, James Clear, like pretty well-known names now, I think. And uh, I think I kind of, put you in, in similar categories, right? Like very Sorry, introspective type of content. And like, I think the categories on your side are like productivity, finance, happiness. I kind of wrapped them all up into like this concept of introspection, but like very open introspection. And you do this interesting thing where you might talk about, here's how to be more productive, but then you also balance that out with like, but also go on a walk and don't listen to a podcast. Mm -hmm. Like stop trying to be productive. Mm -hmm. so, that's an interesting tension there. Like, where does that come from? Like, how, do, how did you develop that sort of like, I guess, self-awareness and... Yeah, I think what, you know, it was Walt Whitman who said we contain multitudes, right? So I think that they're, they're well, first of all, there's, there's aging, right? Aging, if you look at yourself 10 years ago and you don't cringe a bit, it's like you didn't take enough <laughs> risk. Right. So I think a lot of it, I, I wasn't talking about introspection in my 20s. Right. I was talking about binge drinking 
and like making as much fucking money as possible, right? And getting late, you know, like that was what I was talking about mm-hmm. in my 20s. Good thing we didn't have a blog. Good thing we didn't have phones, uh, smartphones in our yeah, 20s. Yeah, you get canceled. Oh my God, I would get, I would get, yeah. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna stop talking. Um, but um, so I think though that a few things, and this, this again, I try to, um, my parents are extremely intelligent and very worldly like they travel a lot they read a lot but they also like you know kind of traditional immigrant mindset is they don't they're not that introspective my dad would always say Hmm. uh and he might listen because cambodian power on this on this (laughs) podcast but my dad would, would always say why would you go on a hike i only walk to places i need to get to oh yeah right which is a very kind of immigrant mindset like i, I mean i don't know what do your parents think about hiking i mean they they enjoy hiking oh uh, they enjoy hiking. it's like it's, it's california relaxing. it's kind of i mean it's there's, there's a whole separate thing there which i won't get into but it's funny because my parents just visited me in boston for the first time since i've moved here like eight years ago and their whole thing was like yeah there's there's not really a reason to go like do you need our help with anything? I'm like, no, but it'd be nice to share my life with you. Yeah. <laughs> but they yep. just visited. I got to show them everything. And they're like, oh, Boston's really nice. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> but it was the whole, like, there was no utility, I guess, yeah. of, of visiting, right? Yeah. yeah. They're like, you're fine. You don't need us. I'm like, yeah, but that's not the oh, point. Oh, yeah. But I, that, that resonates, yeah. So, so, so my parents aren't that introspective in that regard. They're very worldly and they're very smart, but they're not introspective. So I actually, I don't know where I got the introspective gene from, but I feel fucking so blessed that I got the introspective gene because that's what allowed me to step off Wall Street. There are a million, a million, not a million, there are hundreds of peers of mine that have way more money and way more success and they, they're like, I can't do it for, and for mm. X, Y, Z reason. And so I think the reason why I was able to leave was I, I, this introspection was like, you have more money than you ever will want to spend. And if you just play your cards right, you could take a, a massive pay cut, but you want more time, you want to be a dad. And so it seems so obvious in hindsight, but I think it, it does require you to break out of the narrative that society has crafted for you. And I honestly mm-hmm. don't know where I got that from, because if anything, <clears throat> immigrants tend to you find comfort <coughs> in the narrative that society has given, especially when they come from Cambodia and the United States. We're like, oh, of course, like we we tried so hard to get here. Like you must follow the narrative here. So I, I don't know where that came from. Other, the only place I could really attribute it to, there's always been a very curious person, and I I, mm-hmm. I, I read, I consume so much information from such a very young age. So that that's maybe the only place that I can attribute tribute this when it comes to um, the writing though and like these tensions right it's like the Frank Ocean tension and Aziz like Aziz wants all the mm-hmm. money but Frank Ocean's like yeah oh, you got to chill man um, I think that I find those tensions to be just like so um, I find them to be so many things I find them to be very amusing like you can almost mm-hmm. laugh at them where it's like ah like Wall Street guy with five million bucks is just worried about not having enough money. I'm like, that's kind of funny, you know, and it kind of shows the absurdity of, of like the human brain. So I think that, that in, as a starting point, I just find these kind of paradoxes or these conundrums just really entertaining. By the way, I'm the like 
chief violator of all of these because it's <laughs> a lot of it is just the stories playing in my head you know so that's one is i find them amusing and then the other thing is i, w- I always ask myself does it have to be this way mm-hmm. right this person that says they're stuck in a job like are they going to be stuck forever like does it really have to be that way what like how do you challenge the assumptions or what's the what's the mental roadblock that's preventing this person from from thriving or from taking that next step so i've always been intrigued by that and i think again it, it comes down to the to to the human condition uh the third thing is that i love people's stories i love just meeting people i love hearing them talk I love hearing their origin stories. And, and it's really, again, it's that curiosity. And it's not manufactured as like, I genuinely want to hear like why people make certain decisions in their lives. And I remember shit. Like I remember so many details about people's lives because I can't, um, it's interesting to me. And so I think mm-hmm. when you put all of those together, you have a genuine interest in people. You have a genuine interest in the human condition. And you could also see, I think this is what makes my writing special, at least to me it does, is that it's, it's kind of funny. Like, you could just laugh at it and maybe pick, like, your favorite cartoons like The Simpsons or South Park or um, Calvin and Hobbes or something like that. It, or even Pixar movies, right? They really, they kind of pick at a lot of these paradoxes or contradictions of being human. And so that has always really fascinated me. And when you share that back with people, it makes it so much more relatable, right? If I talk about, my wife and I once had this conversation, we're like, should we get divorced? Like, mm. if, we, if I lead with that, and then I talk about what we did to not get divorced, you're going to pay way more attention than if I'm like, I read seven books on divorce and these are the eight takeaways, right? And you can't make that shit up. I mean, I guess you could make it up, but I think that when you write for 415 consecutive weeks, like it would be harder to lie for 415 weeks. (laughs) Like that would be more stressful than to just tell the truth. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the paradox you're referring to in that, that tension, like listeners might be realizing, Hey, this is a different type of, conversation like where's the marketing where's Mm -hmm. the software conversation and and maybe this this was a little bit selfish for me because i've kind of been working a lot but i also have that internal tension of yeah i'm working a lot now but hopefully in the future that's not the case so i'm kind of Mm -hmm. working towards that sort of thing and i imagine a lot of listeners are also very career driven trying to move up the ranks move up the ladder get those pay raises get those promotions and maybe they need to hear this message message Mm -hmm. of hey like it's okay to have that tension of wanting to also take a break every now yeah, and then. Yeah. Uh, and like I walk my dog with no headphones on now, like just mm-hmm. paying attention to him, sometimes talking to talking to my dog. Um, yeah. And so this this tension, regardless of whether someone's like made millions already or not, I think it's important for folks to do that introspection, especially in their professional lives and not getting stuck in the script of I'm stuck in this job because I have four years for my stocks to vest or something yeah, like that. Yeah. It's like, are you really stuck or are you mm-hmm. is it like there's some complicitness in that. Well, can I, tell, can I give you a very specific marketing story about that tension? Of course. So, yeah, you got to give the fans what they want, right? So, <laughs> we'll here talk for, about, I'm about here for you, fam. <laughs> um, okay, so I'll give you the TLDR just to set the stage. So, 
uh, I've been an online creator for eight years, and I didn't really monetize for the first four other than one-on-one coaching. Then I started to teach a course on productivity called Supercharge Your Productivity. It was originally a course on how to use Notion, the software tool, but then it morphed into like a bit of a lifestyle design course of like, I we always say it's the only course that connects the pursuit of productivity to life's larger questions. Mm-hmm. So that was what the course was. That course, we ran it for about uh, three years. I think it did like 1.8 million in top line. It wasn't that profitable because I kept reinvesting in like hiring more people and all that. But I'm, I'm shutting down the course. It's, it's not performing well, so I'm shutting down something. But I'm, I'm leaving the world of info products. So you would say to someone like me, oh, you have 50,000 email subscribers, you have you know, 40,000 Twitter followers, you know, you're, you're good at social media, whatever. Info products is the way someone like you makes money. Like, like you have the thing, which is like an engaged audience and you know how to teach and you know how to sell. So here's the thing though, is that first I got super bored with info products. Uh, so that's one of the reasons. Uh, but the second was, I felt, so you mentioned we're in the realm of, I think you called it um, introspection. I would say, to use a more common label, it's like self-improvement. Mm-hmm. We're in the realm of self-improvement. And so here's my issue with self-improvement content. So I write a lot of self-improvement content, and I believe that I can help people self-improve or improve themselves. But the thing with info products is with self-improvement content, you basically, the way you sell an inf- info product, do I have to explain what info products are in this context or is that a safe assumption uh, that listeners? I think it's, you, look, folks can assume it's like okay. probably like eBooks and courses. Courses, yeah. yeah. Anything that can be repli- with, replicated with a marginal cost of zero or close to zero. Anything yeah. recorded digital. Um, self-serve courses, things like that. Um, the problem with self-improvement info products is that the way you sell them, you need pain-based marketing. And so you basically need to, to, to find the most creative ways to say, you're not enough, you're not doing enough, you're not productive enough, you're ugly, your relationships are gonna fail, you're prone to get swept up in the next recession, there's someone better than you, there's someone doing it faster than you, buy my course, mm-hmm. right? And this is the tension is that pain-based marketing is actually very effective, especially when you know how to do it well. And I 100% believe in in the product. It it had like a 3% refund rate. It was a $2,000 course, um, 3% refund rate, no questions asked, 30 days. You could take the entire course and ask for a refund, I'll give you your money back. So the product was great, but it was getting people in, I had to do the pain-based marketing. And so I came up with a little trick, and maybe we could share it in the show notes or we could talk about it, is um, I felt really uncomfortable with the pain-based marketing. So I turned it Which into- ironic, because you're a great copywriter. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, that's what I hate about copywriting, is that great mm-hmm. copywriters are really good at pain-based marketing. Mm-hmm. I'm not even using the right term. There's probably like a, a more technical term, but basically making people feel like shit marketing. Um, and so I hated making people feel like shit. So what I did instead was I created these two hypothetical characters. You may remember Tim and Tina. Mm -hmm. And this was actually inspired by this legendary copywriting ad 
called A Tale of Two Men. And it was this old school Wall Street Journal ad. Are you familiar with that ad, David? I'm not, no. Okay, so uh, we can put this in the show notes too. But The Tale of Two Men is basically, there's two men, you know, Jack and Joe. And Jack and Joe went to the same college. They got the same major. They graduated the same year. They worked at the same company. 20 years later, Jack is a middle-level manager and Joe is the CEO. What's the difference? Joe read the Wall Street Journal every day. And it's like one of the most successful like uh, Wall Street Journal ads ever. They call it the billion dollar ad campaign. I don't know how, how they made that up, how they came up with that. But so anyway, so I took this thing and I'm like, you know, one day I would love to use this framework of two people who started the same place and one ends up completely different. And so was, I'd been ruminating on this framework for a very long time. And I came up with basically Tim and Tina and long story short, Tim is a, a, a buffoon who just takes all the productivity advice at face value. And Tina is this wise, enlightened kind of yogi that's like crushing life without working hard. And Tim is like constantly reading Atomic Habits and you know his, his kid's always pissed off with him. He's always on his phone. He trades you know crypto and meme stocks. And you know every cultural thing that was happening, I would always throw it on Tim. <laughs> so effective. The most effective thing copywriting I've ever done. People would buy the course and they would be kicked out. They would be uh, excluded from the sequence and they would know it was coming. They would email me direct and say, hey, can you please add me to the sequence? I just want to read it. That's how legendary it was. But first of all, I got boring. Like I kept re re it up, you know, every, every cohort. So like I would change some of the stories. But what I realized later, I was like, this is just pain-based marketing with cartoon characters. Mm-hmm. And I just fundamentally am not okay with that. Because basically what I was doing is it was even more manipulative. Like normally it's like, you suck, you suck, you suck, you suck, you suck by my course. But here it's like, there's this really funny cartoon character who sucks, who sucks, who sucks. And you're like, oh, I'm not that cartoon character. It's so ridiculous. But I've disarmed you by making you think that you're not that cartoon character where subconsciously you realize you are that cartoon character. So it's even more manipulative. And I was really good at it. And I'm just like, fuck this. I, I, it's, it's not, you know, people say like, I don't want to do work that's like not aligned with my values. Making yeah. people buy something by making them feel like shit is not aligned with my values. And I'm yeah. just not going to do it anymore. So that's, yeah. uh, that is probably... Well, there's, there's a marketing story for you. There is the tension for you. And there is this, like, you said it very kindly, like modeling behavior. My wife would argue that I don't model enough behaviors, but there is the modeling behavior. It's like, I say that this shit, I'm not okay with it. And I'm leaving a lot of money on the table, but that is how I live my life. Full stop. Yeah. It takes me a while to get there, but but I fundamentally choose to live my life that way. We had a, my partners and I had a similar approach at least to how we do like LinkedIn content where we're like, hey, we see what these people are doing. They're getting like thousands of likes and comments and it's getting shared and all this stuff. But one, we think it's cheesy. And two, it just, we don't agree with that type of yeah. writing. We think it's very like ingenuine and clickbaity and pulls that like, more like sensationalist type marketing. 
like, we're not going to do that. We're just going to share expertise, share actually how we do stuff with clients. And hopefully that builds trust and they want to work with us. Not because we did some like fear based thing of like, you're doing, you're missing out on these 20 mm-hmm. AI marketing tactics and then like have a slideshow and all of that. Like we just fundamentally decided not to do that smaller scale, but I, I really resonate with what you're saying around. Yeah. If, if you're against it, don't do it. Um, but it can might, be hard be because some folks, it can be hard because you feel you, you can feel like you're the crazy person. Mm. I'm like, mm-hmm. no, you're the crazy person <laughs> that gets off doing none of this, this shit. But like, no, no, you're the crazy person because you are leaving so much money on the table by not doing it. And that's, you know, that's why, I mean, to draw it full circle, that's why these, these questions of introspection are so beautiful to me because this is actually not really a money question. Like money is the, the prompt but it really is like, do you know what you stand for and at what, you know, are you willing to stand for it? Right. That's, there's yeah. many instances of that in life that don't have nothing to do with money. Yeah. And I think maybe this is a good time to, I've wanted to ask you about this for a while, but there's this recurring description of you as like the Oprah for millennials uh, that I've seen. And one, where did that come from and how do you feel about it? Yeah. Oh man, um, it to every this is the thing too about showing up authentic, authentically. I mean, I'm gonna tell a little story that's like a, it's gonna be a little long, so I'm gonna tell it very briefly. But the reason that Oprah for Millennial story came out was twofold. One was that uh, the reporter had been every time someone's written a story on me, and I've been written up in CNN, Barrons, CNBC, Business, uh, Bloomberg, and Business Insider. Every time those stories have come out, the reporters have always been on my newsletter. So that's how they know about mm-hmm. me. So, and they know they've kind of followed the story for a while. So the CNN reporter was there and she asked if she can take, um, come in and interview me. I was living in New York at the time. I was like, sure. I, I forget where it come. It probably came up in the interview, but this was right around when, right when Instagram stories started. So right when Snapchat was like, it was peak Snapchat. So this was like, 2016 peak snapchat so i'm this you know 2016 i'm this 37 year old who is fucking around on snapchat like literally that that's kind of like a 50 year old being on tiktok a year ago you know um so it made no sense and i had i had like 26 followers and i was i had committed to doing a snapchat story that was kind of like a little self-improvement story every day and i think i did it for 200 consecutive days and but i had 36 followers on Snapchat. <laughs> but somehow this reporter knew that I was posting daily on Snapchat. So she just had in her head that I was this like Snapchat wizard. I don't even think she probably wasn't even on Snapchat because she was, she was younger than me, but she was like an old millennial. And so in her mind, it was like, wow, guy's got a blog, does this, and tells these Snapchat stories every day. And so that's probably where, that's where definitely like the millennials part came in. And then the Oprah was like kind of self-improvement. So it just goes to show that there's so much fucking luck in everything. Um, There's fucking luck, but at the same time, to do 200 consecutive days of Snapchat stories when you're 36 years old and you have like 20 followers, you got to be a little bit deranged, right? Like, (laughs) and so, you know, I'm... I'm obsessive about the things that interest me, even if they're low status like that. That was actually low status 
to be a 36 year old on Snapchat with no followers posting daily. That's, that's low status, not high status. So I'm willing to do, do, do those things. And so that's kind of how the, how it came out. Um, how do I feel, you know, at the time it was like all these publishers immediately emailed me like, Hey, you want to write a book? I'm like, Oh, I'm the shit. And I tried to write a book proposal. It didn't get bought. Um, so I feel, I mean, it's an honor. I think, you know, I think very highly of Oprah. I think it's kind of funny because I'm not a millennial. I'm a Gen X. So that, but I, I, I behave like a millennial. Um, so I find the whole thing funny. And I actually think it's, it, it's funny that you brought it up because it shows that these identities, like I literally haven't thought of Oprah for millennials in probably two to two years. So it's just yeah. funny how, it's... how some one, the way one person views you or perceives you or researches you or is, can be very disconnected from how you see yourself. Yeah. I mean, I, I would not have labeled you as that, but yeah. it comes up whenever I Google your name, yeah. <laughs> when, I, when I was doing research. Um, and the crazy thing about that, that thing is that, again, it shows how luck is powerful. I just like, the reporter came in, I had this polka dot sweatshirt that was kind of funky, cool. Um, and then we were in this conference room with this purple wall. And so the, the reporter takes a picture of me with their iPhone with this funky sweatshirt on this purple wall and it looks like a photo shoot. Because yeah. what's the key to a photo shoot is having a monochromatic background and like something that creates a lot of co- visual contrast. It was total luck. <laughs> but that thing, the picture was awesome. Yeah, it's a it great made photo. me look so fucking cool. And, and then there's this Oprah for Millennials headline. And then here's the last thing. They fucking released the story on New Year's Eve, which is like oh, wow. the ultimate time for a feel-good story. So like... All these elements just came out of nowhere. And it was just, it was just a, a stroke of amazing, amazing good timing and, and good fortune. At the same time, like I, when you do reps, newsletters, blogging, tick, whatever, if you show up all the time and you, you are adding value and you are half, have half a brain, good shit's gonna happen to you. Like that's a yeah. very important lesson that I want everyone to, to, to hear is that throughout everything I've done is always high, high levels of consistency, high levels of showing up. I think I'm above average on the talent, on the bell curve of talent, but not by much, but the reps just, they compound and then good shit yeah. finds you. Yeah, that's uh, for, for the marketers looking for some like professional takeaways. There's definitely like, some learnings there around like consistency. Like you don't have to be, like releasing banger launches every single time you're launching something new or, or like every blog post you publish. But those one or two that really hit might be the ones that really, like if you get lucky and you get lucky by showing up, like those could be the ones that could be career defining. So great lesson there. I, I want to have a little bit uh, of a tidbit around the concept of 10X work because yeah. that was quite impactful. Um, and then we'll, we'll get into a little bit yeah. more of the, the tension of like, not just talking about productivity, but 10 X work is one of the, the main concepts you've 10 K work, about. 10 K work. Yeah. Uh, my fault. Yeah. To, no. let, how would you describe 10 K work to, to listen? Yeah. So 10 K work is, I mean, I try not to work hard. And when I, when I was working hard, I was always trying to find ways to really amplify my work. And so 10K work is kind of the culmination of my experience and kind of 
like really trying to find like how do I amplify my strengths? And so at its core, it's a very simple matrix. Uh, it's a two by two matrix. We could link to it in the show notes. Uh, the vertical axis is leverage. So it's like how much amplification do you get on something? And then the horizontal axis is skill. So like low skill or high skill. And each quadrant, you have $10 work, low skill, low leverage, $100 work, low skill, high leverage, uh, and so on and so forth, 1,000 and 10K. And it's not really like you're not making $10,000 an hour, but it's just good to see like the level of impact. So if you think about, let's look at um, $10 work, low skill, low leverage. The classic example is like, can I do this work hungover? Right. So if you're like redoing meta tags on your blog, on your SEO posts, or if you're um, recreating your Instagram, your highlights uh, or creating icons for Instagram highlights, $10 work. Right. You could do that hungover, low skill, low leverage. Right. Again, you need to do it from time to time. But I don't know. Do you really need to create a custom icon for your Instagram highlights? Uh, It's debatable. Um, $100 work, low skill, high leverage. So that's when you amplify the wrong thing. Right. And so the classic example here would be this is the land of, of, of tools, right? Productivity tools. So Notion, let's say. So, you know, you might go to a content strategist and be like, hey, can you create a content strategy for me? And then the content strategist might maybe they're really junior. They come back with this like really complex Notion document. It's like, look, you know, we have this field here that then triggers this field. And you could look at it this way. We're like, that's not a strategy. That's an implementation, mm-hmm. right? And they're like, yeah, but it makes our lives so much easier. Yes, your content calendar in Notion does make our lives easier, but it doesn't solve the problem of what is our content strategy, right? Mm-hmm. And so the thing about $100 work is that it's very seductive. Like you feel when you're doing that Notion content calendar, you feel like you're the king of the world. Uh, but really like a much more boring question would be, um, what does our brand stand for? Like that's not a fun mm-hmm. question to, to brainstorm. So that's hundred dollar work. Then thousand uh, dollar work is low, high skill, low leverage. So it's the thing that you're good at. You know, you're a B two B marketer, so it might be uh, you know writing SEO briefs. It could be coming up with strategy for your clients. It could be um, onboarding new clients. Um, you know, design um, different types of strategy briefs, things like that. It's the thing yeah. you get paid to do. But the problem with the 1K work is that when David goes on vacation or if David were to take a sabbatical and he does all the strategy briefs, uh, no strategy briefs get done. So mm-hmm. how do we take this skill that David has, strategy briefs, and, and I'm sure your partners can do strategy briefs, but let's just, for sake of argument, assume that they can. Yeah. How do you take strategy briefs, the skill that you are the master at, that's, you know, a lot of it's in your head, and how do we, how do we scale it? How do we do it so that it can happen when you're on a sabbatical, right? And so that might mean deconstructing a strategy brief into a smaller series of steps. It might be training a junior on filling out 80% of the thing, and then uh, the last 20 comes over the top from David. It could be having internal training so that you basically download what's in your mind into their mind, right? So you can kind of train them. And so 10K work is the thing that really, um, really, really, really gives you a lot of scale. And so inside 10K work, there's a lot of different things. The classic one for 10K work, which, oh, 10K, which is high skill, high leverage. The classic one for 10K work is um, just recruiting. There, there's no better scale than identifying talent, recruiting them, onboarding them, engaging them, pay, you know, tr- tr- paying them 
fairly, keeping them engaged. Um, there's other ways, though. Like, look, we're talking about 10K work, right? It's, it's, it's effectively a meme. You know, I was going to file for a mm-hmm. trademark, but then I just, I'm like, I'm over the info products productivity. I'm like, y'all go yeah. crazy, man. If you want to go be the 10K work guy, like, yeah, I'm not standing in your way. Um, but it's the power of a meme, right? The power of a brand, the power of mm-hmm. um, an icon, so to speak. Um, other ways, having a great network, right? You know, I, you know, I can call jur- reporters at the Wall Street Journal and be like, hey, you know, um, can, I want to share some, something I'm seeing. Or that way, when I release a book, maybe these reporters will write, will excerpt my book, right? So it's building relationships that a lot of people don't have, seeing deal flow, being that unique person that can cl- uh, close. It could be pricing, right? What's the easiest way to mm-hmm. increase your revenue? You can get more clients or you can increase your prices, right? Increasing your prices is something that's really psychologically hard to do. Most people probably underprice themselves. Um, And so an easy way to boost your revenue would be to understand your own issues with pricing and pricing increases and so on. So anyway, once you then distill all of the possible things that you could be working on in any given day, they're going to fall into one of these four quadrants of this matrix. And the question then becomes, like, what is the right mix? We need all four quadrants, right? Like, you need to file Mm -hmm. your expense report so that you get reimbursed for your expenses, right? You can do that hungover. I just hope that, you know, if you're a morning person, you're not filling out your expense reports at 8 a.m. on a Monday morning, right? Maybe you're doing that at, like, 10 p.m. on a Friday night when you've got, you know, Top Boy Season 5 on playing in the background uh, Netflix, right? So... Everyone needs to do all four of these quadrants based on your titles, your aspirations, your risk preference. You'll have a different allocation of those. But the more 10K work seeds, 10K work is also planting a lot of seeds for the future where, right? I mean, look, I've told the story of 10K work on probably 50 podcasts, right? And every time it's it anchors the episode. So I just show up, I tell the stories and um, I try to, you know, judge them up a bit um but there's a tremendous amount of leverage right i've done the course is about 10k work i've done you know million and a half dollars of revenue on that course with the same same slides so that's there's real leverage there yeah i think that's it's important for folks and i think the reframing of like the actual dollars for each task is a good reframing versus just like hey the the manual boring tasks are like probably not worth your time. Like that's not as tangible versus, yeah. Oh, this is a, this is I shouldn't be doing this work. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we used to go into companies. We don't do it as much anymore. We used to go into companies and do trainings and they would say to us, one of the biggest benefits of the training was language is powerful is having that mm-hmm. language. And so, um, you know, someone would say in the meeting like, Hey, let's collect, uh, let's, let's scrape the data of all of our competitors, you know, client list publicly. And someone might say like, yeah, that, that feels like a hundred dollar work. And they know exactly like the whole team knew exactly what they were referring to. They're like, Oh, that thing that you think is productive, but is actually a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Right. So just like instantly, like you said, you can't be like, Oh, you're, that's the thing you think is productive, but it's actually a waste of time. Like no one that doesn't hit, that doesn't land with anyone. Yeah. But when you're like, Oh, that's a hundred dollar work. They're like, Ooh, you're right. Yeah, let's, burn. Let's, let's not do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the the concept of 10K work, I'd, I'd say, so I, I look at rad reads as maybe there's like seasons, right? Like 
the 10K course was the info product season, which yep. is maybe this most recent season. Start off as like coaching in season one, maybe newsletter season two and info products in season three. I don't know if maybe that's how you would place yeah. it. Uh, and it kind of culminated in, I read this blog post from you recently, the, the $645,099 business pivot. So maybe you could share a bit more about like kind of the evolution and yeah. kind of what that pivot was. That's the, that's the copywriter in me, right? Like once the copywriter <laughs> like put a very, very specific number in a subject line and people want and a headline, people want to read it. So you see, I got my copywriting chops. Um, the, I mean, the, 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 the real quick story is if you look at Zoom's stock chart, if you look at Peloton's stock chart, if you look at um, Slack, I guess Slack's not public anymore, but if you look at any uh, pandemic darling their stock chart, it's like a mountain, right? Like, so right before the pandemic, it's like towards the bottom. Then it's like this giant mountaintop for two years. And then it goes literally right back to where it was before. Um, like flat um, with a precipitous decline. And look, our info product business got, we, we went the same trend. And, you know, we had two choices. We could keep fighting and try to rein, reinvent around the edges of the info products. But... That's when I had my own personal come to Jesus moment where I'm just like, I don't want to, I don't, I just don't want to do the reality of info products is you, you really just, you're a world-class digital marketer mm -hmm. and the info product is really secondary. And I just, that's not an interesting business to me. Uh, I'm, I'm not interested in being a world-class digital marketer, uh, nor do I think I'm capable of being a world-class marketer. So, so that was kind of that pivot and it all happened so quickly that like I couldn't make payroll. So I had mm -hmm. to like people go really quickly. And that was kind of a blessing in, in hindsight. It's never a blessing when you deal with the human side of those hard decisions. It was a corporate blessing in the sense that, you know, if it was a slower bleed, I think there would have been a lot of twiddling your thumbs, kind of like, let's just wait one more month and see if things turn around. The reality is things have not turned around and that's a, not just for me. I think it's like anyone who had a heavy, heavy digital presence where you were selling something digital is just is struggling now just because people want to do stuff in the real world. So that was that. So that kind of the end of that season, you can call it season two, season three, it's probably season two. So season one was coaching. Season two was info products. And we're basically mm -hmm. entering the start of season three. And so season three is just me and one colleague, uh, um, product manager, an integrator of sorts, if you've read Traction. Um, and I don't know exactly where it's going to go. I think it's really, really, really going to be centered around creativity. And even then, as I kind of abandoned a lot of those products, like my creativity has gone through the roof, right? So I'm writing mm -hmm. daily. Uh, I'm writing weekly um, posting like pretty solid social media content daily across most channels. We have a weekly podcast. Um, I've been starting, I've been messing around with YouTube, but again, it's really more through the lens of like, now I ask before I'd ask myself is like, is this going to convert new subs and ultimately yeah. new clients? Now I ask myself like, is this thing that I'm putting out actually going to help someone? Mm -hmm. And so it's a very different frame. And, uh, yeah, I mean, podcasts are pretty bad for conversion. You know, they're they're much better kind of brand brand awareness tools. So we'll see where where that goes. 
you know, when you have an audience, when you have kind of our, our, our readers are, are pretty affluent. So when you have an audience who's loyal, when you have affluent, an audience that's pretty affluent, there's just a lot of, there's just a lot of opportunity. Um, and again, I feel very lucky that, you know, I have my own runway where I can take stretches of not making money to, to figure out what I want to be doing. And so in season three, I think I see, I, I think there's definitely going to be a book and oh. it's going to be uh, a weird book. Uh, it's not going to be a straight shooter, nonfiction, productivity, self-help book. Um, so it's going to be weird. And if it's because it's going to be weird, uh, I'm not sure if it will get a traditional publishing deal. So I'm going to work on a weird book uh, in my time. I'm going to continue to do the podcast, my podcast, the Examine Life podcast. I absolutely love it. It's so fun to do. It's so easy. It's no prep. I don't prep. I don't edit. So I literally just show up, have 90 minute conversations and then it, you know, it does its thing. So like, I want more things like that in my life. I still enjoy writing. I, I'm, I'm probably like the last person in the universe who blogs, but I basically blog every week still. Uh, and I love, I love it to me. Blogging is really where I, um, it's kind of how comedians will go to really small clubs to do uh, to practice new jokes. Uh, mm-hmm. To me, that's blog. That's what blogging. Blogging used to be the final product, but now it's where I go to practice my new my new jokes, and then the final product and en- ends up in like YouTube or podcasts or things like that. And I'm totally fine with that because, again, like you said, it's like I really just enjoy the process of writing, and like yeah, sweet that you know I get to send it hit send to fifty thousand people. But um, my blog, you know, once I hit send, it's, it's so sad. I'm like, I'll spend two hours writing a, a blog post. I hit send, a thousand people read it on my newsletter. I share it on social. Social platforms downvote links, so no one sees it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it just like, it just goes to die at radreads.co. Um, you know, a sad, sad existence for that blog post. But... Again, that's if you view it as a blog post. If you view it as a mm. rep, then, dude, my reps are out of control, right? Yeah. And so I can get on a podcast and I have a fresh, like that Frank Ocean story, I, I don't think I've ever told it on a podcast. Um, so I'm not telling the same story on every single podcast because I'm constantly um, trying out new jokes uh, on my blog. And then the ones that land, I they'll probably become chapters in the book, the the ones that are juicy will probably become podcast episodes uh, and YouTube videos. I'm still new in the whole YouTube stuff, so that's going to be a while. Um, but most importantly, it's just it's fun. And um, actually, you, you would enjoy this, David, and, and the audience would enjoy this. I have a new metric for success. And, and the new metric for success for any piece of content is um, how many DMs I get from it. Yeah. Because that's when you know that you're like your work's really landing with people when they take the time to DM you, Um, and that sets up a yeah text you right that sets up a very different a very different game. Uh, But that's a game that I want to play like that. That's a game of real human connection. Um, You know, it's it's a a modified version of how you and I met originally. So um, so yeah, that's that's what that's what's got me excited. The other thing that I, that I think, you know, I've also been thinking, you know, I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. And so with my nine-year-old, I'm kind of starting to leave that phase of parenting where you're needed all the time. Like, make me mm-hmm. a snack. Like, my nine-year-old can make herself meals and she can babysit her younger sister. 
So I'm, I'm not there yet, but I'm kind of approaching pretty quickly the age where I'll have two semi-independent in, kids. And so that will free up a lot of time. Like I can travel more. Like I basically put traveling on hold for 10 years because um, I just mm-hmm. I just wanted to be around my kids. Um, but now that, you know, the needs are different, they don't need you physically as much. Um, one thing I'm kind of keen to explore is like the intersection of th- this idea of, you know, people responding in the DMs, coaching, like introspection, storytelling, um, this like genuine desire to hear people's like true stories or like true, true authentic voice is like, what does that look like in, in an event form? And um, I love people. I'm really confident and comfortable, like live, like on a stage. Like I don't, I don't like get nervous that much about public speaking. So I'm really thinking like I, I could see something where there's different groups like dinner, you know, di- dinners and like little mini conferences, things like that. It's very kind of mm-hmm. different than I'm not really set up from a, a team standpoint to run events like those are pretty time consuming. But again, if you find right, if you say like, well, I can do all the coordination online digitally, right through my blog, through my socials, through, you know, things like Eventbrite and so on. Even then, like they have like they have um, kind of um, Airbnb for event space. So you can just go in and be like, oh, "Oh, I need a 50 person room on a Tuesday night, you know, and, you know, like all all these restaurants or these, you know, kind of social places will kind of post their oversupply. And so, you know, it might actually be easier than one thinks versus the traditional way of like renting out, you know, a convention center and like blocks of hotel Mm -hmm. rooms. And you're like, no, you know, so that's an idea that's intriguing me. So I think between that you know, we, we have the book, we have the podcast, the content, we have one-on-one coaching. I, I have a very, very small group of like uh, uh, high-end co- coaching clients that I work one-on-one with. Uh, so if anyone's listening to that, it's usually exited founders and Wall Street kind of CIO types um, and group coaching and then like dab- dabbling with, with events. And like events can play nice with you know, like podcasting, right? Pod like live yeah. like podcast, things like that. So that's kind of where I'm dabbling, but I don't want to like rush into anything. I don't feel like an urgency. I think it could be very uh, organic. Yeah. I mean, as a friend, I'm, I'm kind of experiencing that firsthand. We start, you started that little WhatsApp group for oh, us. Yeah. And it's like Cambodian American professionals, but we're like self-organizing and getting, we're meeting up in New York. Yeah. I'm not sure you've been following, right? So yeah. it's sort of like, you bringing together like-minded people and it's like, Hey, like let's all meet at this place. I'm going to be in the city. It yeah. doesn't have to be like this huge event space or like con- convention center or anything like that. Yeah. But I think you're onto something and I'm sure folks are looking for that sort of connection too. So whenever you decide to do that, I'm, I'm there. Yeah. Thank you. And I, and I really believe, I hope people that, that, that are listening, um, see that like I'm trying to live, outside of the narrative that's expected from me. It doesn't mean that that narrative is bad, but if the narrative's not right for me, uh, I'm always questioning the narrative. So I'm kind of a, a, a mm-hmm. misfit in that regards. So if someone's like, conferences are expensive, I'm like, are they? Really, are they, are they? Are, like, what's expensive? Is this part expensive or whatever? You know, so that, that'd be one thing. Like, oh, you, you can't leave Wall Street, really? Like, why can't you leave Wall Street? Why, why, why? Um, so I'm always kind of questioning the narratives. And again, this doesn't mean that the narratives are bad. Some of them are like 
really great. Like, I don't know, marriage is a great narrative. I'm very happy with that marriage and the narrative of marriage and the narrative of parenthood and the narrative of like sending your kids to public school. It's like schooling your kids, you know, like I'm not contrarian in any of those, in, in those opinions. I'm not, you know, polyamorous. I'm not a polyamorous homeschooler. Um, so, but I do Is that want the most extreme thing you could come up with. Yeah, <laughs> Oh yeah, exactly. It's like bong, you know, like you said, bong. Like bong is uncle. It's like no, bong is bong rips, right? Uh, so like bong rip. Okay. Um, I, I don't smoke weed. I wish I could, but it, it um, weed just makes me super paranoid and super hungry. It's like why would I? Why don't need those two things? I don't want life. either of those. Yeah. yeah uh, I wish though. Um, anyway, so, side note. So I just want the people listening that, you know. If there's a script out there, a societal script, it could be in your career, it could be in your relationships, it could be in your uh, in, in your communities, it could be with as it relates to money. Just like, and if it doesn't feel like it's right for you, just like you have my permission. Not that we've never met, and and so you know, take it for what it's worth. But you have my permission to to poke at it, or or maybe said differently, give yourself permission to poke at it. Be like, why does everyone? I don't know. Let's we we're talking about marriage, so like. You know, everyone says like you have to have a kid to be happy, and like if you're not feeling having a kid, like don't have a kid, because everyone else, just because everyone else around you is telling you that like kids make you happy, and like there's the story that they always say, oh, I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a grandparent alone. You know, I don't want to get old with no one to take care of me. It's like, I don't know, that's a kind of narcissistic reason to have a kid. It's like I'm gonna have a kid so that someone can take care of me when I'm old. You know, it's like I don't know, like the person that's giving you that advice, you probably don't want to hear their advice on parenting anyway right so um so just give yourself permission to uh, to explore at the edges play with it you know nothing's so set in stone and this is where i really 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 believe that the um the introspection is uh is killer um actually can i read you like this very short story it might take like 45 seconds yeah, I have it on my, uh, on my drafts app, so let me just read it. Um, okay. So this is a story. It's from the book uh, Being Peace by the, um, the Buddhist uh, teacher Thich Nhat Hanh. I'm, I'm huh. probably pronouncing yeah. his name incorrectly. And so I'm just going to read this story. Uh, the Buddha told the story. A young widower who loved his five-year-old very much was away on business. Bandits came and burned his whole village and took his son away. When the man returned, he saw the ruins. He panicked. He took the charred corpse of an infant to be his own child. He began to pull his hair, beat his chest, crying uncontrollably. He organized a cremation ceremony, put the ashes in a beautiful velvet bag. Everywhere he went, he carried the ashes with him when he slept, when he worked, and when he ate. One day, his real son escaped from the robbers and found his way home. He arrived at his father's cottage at midnight and knocked at the door. The father was still carrying the bag of ashes, crying. He asked, who is there? The child answered, it's me, dad. Open the door. It's your son. In his agitated state of mind, the father thought that some mischievous boy was making fun of him. And he shouted at the child, go away, and continued to cry. The boy knocked again and again, and the father refused to let him in. Some time passed, and the child gave up. From that point on, the father and the son never saw one another. After telling the story, the Buddha says, somewhere, some, sometimes somewhere, you take something to be the truth. If you cling to it so much, when the truth comes in person and knocks on your door, you will not open it. And so I just think about that in myself, and I encourage you, listener, to think about that. It's like, 
what is the bag of ashes that you're carrying? What is the knock on the door that you're refusing to hear? And what is the consequence of that knock being unheard for the rest of your life? Right. And that's at its core. That story moves me so much because that is at its core. What I find the ethos of rad rates to be is like when the knock is there, you got to listen. You got to be prepared. You got to be willing to face it. You have to put aside doubt. You have to put aside the story, right? The story, the story was my son's dead. Like, and so he, that story was seared in his head. That, yeah. And so that to me is the beauty of the work that I've been called to do. It's the work that I'm so honored to share with you as a friend and on this podcast and to everyone listening. And that's my invitation to you. If you take anything away from this podcast, uh, it's the power of the tale of two men. Uh, so excellent copywriting framework. And then the second thing you take away is that, um, yeah, just where are you failing to hear the knock? I feel like that's a powerful place to end this podcast, but I had so many questions. For you <laughs> You're the host, man. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe one of the knocks that, uh, I don't know maybe if this is a good, segue into it but you did mention before we start recording that there was a pivotal moment that you've been reflecting on a bit where you could have taken vc funding for rad reads and gone in a whole different yeah. direction with the business with life i don't know if that's like some yeah. version of some knock on your door yeah. that you're like no i don't want that but that sounded like it was kind of top of mind for you like mm -hmm. that sort of trade-off yeah i think that i mean I've said this on on a different podcast, so um, I, I, I always, the, the Asian in me hates talking about money, but it made a lot of W-2 income when I worked on Wall Street, you know, mm -hmm. so anywhere between a million and $2 million a year of, of income, um, pre-tax. And so when I left, and my best year as an entrepreneur for context was 250K. So you, it's like 10%. Um, so, you could see that that could be a tough pill to swallow again if you're holding on to different narratives and in this one a particularly pernicious narrative is that your sense of self is a derivative is a byproduct or a, a mirror of your bank account your the, the, the proverbial self-worth equals net worth right mm -hmm. and you could say all you want you're not your net worth but I don't know, when we get a huge client win, we feel really good about ourselves. And when we lose a huge client, we feel really shitty about ourselves, right? It's kind of, that's the way things work in the West, in the capitalist West. Um, and so for a long time, I thought, well, well, hey, I'm leaving a lot of money on the table, but I'm becoming an entrepreneur. And by becoming an entrepreneur, then I'll be able, I'm playing the, the I would say this all the time, I'm playing the super long game. Yeah. And I think that something will hit in my entrepreneurial journey where I will basically recoup whatever income that I had lost, right? Which is, you know, let's take a split the baby, like a, a million and a half dollars at eight years, right? That's $12 million uh, without compounding. Um, so it's like, oh, I could do something that will net me 12 million bucks over the span of my entrepreneurial career. The thing that I realized though was that I think I could, it would not be easy, but again, it goes back to the pain-based marketing thing, is that it would be in, in, in uh, up against what I stand for and my beliefs and my values. And what that is, is 
I truly value, I work 30 hours a week, totally on my own time. I've never set an alarm clock. I surf every morning. <laughs> I lift in the afternoons. I meditate 40 minutes a day. Like I, I have a very peaceful life. Um, and you know, you could say I've earned it. You could say I've designed it. Uh, you know, that's so, however you want to interpret that, how I got there. I've realized that if I want to have a, an exit that, you know, nets me 12 million bucks, well, the number one thing I need is to, I need to hire a bunch of people. And, uh, you get, even if you hire the best people, the minute you hire people, your claims on your time grow exponentially. And the reality is that, you know, you might hire someone in Germany and they need to talk California morning, which is my surf time, right? What are you going to say? No, we can't have our meeting because I'm surfing. Like, I want you to stay up late at like, so can we meet at midnight your time so that I could surf? Like, cause surfing is really important to me. No, you can't. And the reality is that it's very, very hard to create. It's possible, but it's very, very, very hard to create something with that level of economic upside with one person or even one, I would go a step further, one person and contractors, very hard. You need like real people who are invested in the outcome of what you're trying to build. And uh, because you need them to gain as well, because that's that's the kind of output you're going to need from them. And just recently, I realized that, like, I don't want that. Maybe when my oh. kids are earlier, like that I, exit, like, you don't yeah, want I don't want that. Anymore. Well, I don't yeah. want that. I don't want that responsibility of managing people. So by uh, definition, I can't have that exit. Like I, I don't, I, I'm not uniquely talented that I could just, you know, spin up $12 million out of thin air. Um, so that, that though was like a bit of a personal reckoning of sorts. Cause it's kind of, it's kind of a script that I had for myself. And again, the, the, the ironic thing about this script is if I never said it to this podcast, like literally no one knows that this is a script for my life, except me. Like, I've even tried to explain it to my wife. She's like, what do you mean? We, like, she was like, we have plenty of money. Like, what's the difference between, you know, X and 12? And like, you know, it's like 12 is so random anyway, you know? Um, <laughs> she's like, we love where, I, like, we don't want a bigger house. We have a nice house already. Um, and so it's the script that I was a prisoner to, right? Mm-hmm. So to some extent, that script was me carrying that bag around, being kind of unwilling to accept any new story. Right. And the story was like, I have to make up the, the, that's what was literally in the bag of the bag of ashes was something's wrong with me. If I don't cover the law opportunity cost of having left wall street, which is such, even as I say it aloud, it's such mm. a fucking ridiculous concept. Right. It's just like, it's, it, it's, it's literally loss aversion. Right. It's like you, yeah. you, you have this line and if you're below the line, bad shit happens. And if you're above the line, good shit happens. Right. But the line is arbitrary. Right. Um, and even then there's a million questions like, is it like inflation adjusted pre-tax post-tax? <laughs> like if you get that money when you're 70, it's not the same as getting it when you're 50, you know, like it's just, it's just, it's, it's just this very hypothetical line that when you pull out any strand of it, it's, it's, it's tenuous at best. Um, so, so yeah, I had this private moment with myself, which was, it, there, there was like a little bit of a grieving of sorts where it's like, Oh, like this, this, there is always this belief of K mm-hmm. as this um, entrepreneur that can make like, I don't know, 12 million bucks isn't fuck you money, but it's like really good money. And 
like I'm basically burying that person because I'm, I just, I know it's not going to happen. Like I know it's not going to happen because I don't have what it takes to make it happen at this mm-hmm. phase of my life. Maybe in my twenties I had it, but not in my mid forties. Um, and so there is a grieving. And again, it's all literally like no one else knows. Well, now all you kind listeners for, so thank you for listening to like my verbal, um, you know, barfing, but, um, it, it literally is just like, it just shows you how powerful your thoughts are because clearly by the way i'm describing this this is like a this is like a big deal in my head (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it's like the listeners are like dude get over yourself man like (laughs) you're good you you work you know whatever they're saying but like, like get over yourself is basically what they're saying so um so so that that might be my my story my version uh of that story and I'm glad, yeah, yes. I'm glad that I took that. Sorry to interrupt you. No I'm glad that, that, that I opened the door. Because if I didn't open the door, I would have, you know, again, I hate to use like, it's a story, but like, I hate to use the son that never sees his dad again. But like, there would be some version of that is like, I would never, I don't know what the thing is that's like, what's going to, what I see when I open the door. But it's going to be pretty good because I've been prisoner to these bag of ashes um, for, you know, eight years. Yeah, I imagine for a lot of people, it's like you're an easy target for criticism. Like, oh, look at this mm-hmm. rich Wall Street guy who's complaining about his feelings or, mm-hmm. or, or whatever. But really, it should be more of a mirror of, hey, if like everyone has their own psychology yeah. and things going on in their head that they might be prisoner to or feeling stuck with, like, what is it that I'm maybe not investigating for myself yeah. or like poking at that i may be like complicit in like creating the situation that i'm in yeah myself um absolutely because think about i mean there's a lot of people that that are rich but there's not a lot of people that are free mm-hmm. right because true freedom is a, is unshackling yourself from those thoughts right that in that fable the dad was not free he was a prisoner to that thought for his whole life and it cost him the ultimate cost right and so it doesn't matter if you have a billion like i don't know elon musk is the richest man in the world is that is he free far i mean again judging on the way by the way he acts he's not i mean no you can read the 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 isaacson book the dude is not free the dude is tormented right mm-hmm. and so you i know billionaires who are not free and I know people who are extremely poor who are completely free. What does that tell you? Freedom is not about how much is in your bank account. Yeah, tell, tell that to the fire folks. <laughs> <laughs> um, th- there's, there's a lot echoed here, or a lot of what you're saying I think echoes like Buddhism, at least mm-hmm. from, from my understanding. And it's uh, I heard from another podcast that you and your wife pay for a lot of like coaching, like both Mm -hmm. individual and like marriage coaching and and parenthood as well. I think how do all those things connect? Like, I don't know how I want to ask this question, but it's, it's a lot of that work that you're doing. And I'm curious, like what can folks be taking from, from the coaching you've received? Yeah. I think that I give a very simple example. Um, Everyone knows, everyone has that task. It's either a task or an email that it just lingers. And you just don't take care of them. 
It's, and so I, I encourage you to think about why is this task lingering? And I suspect that it's not really related to the task itself. It's related to some feeling that will come as the result of the task being taken or the email being sent, right? So I had to send these emails to like see if these people want to re-up their coaching. That's the task that just keeps getting de delayed. The do you want to re-up your coaching email? Why is that? What's the feeling there? It's the fear of rejection, mm. right? So the beautiful thing about all there, this happens all of the time in our lives, right? Like any time you feel out of alignment, like if you yell at someone who cuts you off, there's pain in you, right? And again, now we're, we're like, we're leaving the realm of money. Right? If you judge someone, there's pain. Right? And so the beautiful thing about all of these coaching practices is that they really they really surface up those things, right? It's like so that's the classic one, like uh fights about the dishwasher, but like in a married couple mm -hmm. are not about the dishwasher. They're about resentment. But you could like if you keep fighting about the dishwasher, the hus the the person who's guilty might usually the husband in, in the trope. The husband would be like, Okay, I'm gonna set a reminder to always unload the dishwasher at seven forty five PM every weekday. That's not gonna cure the resentment in your marriage. Mm -hmm. Right? And if you believe that the only thing if you believe that you're fighting over the dishwasher because of the dishwasher you're the father who refuses to open the door. So, and that's everywhere, right? It's, are you afraid to speak up in a meeting? Do you speak too much in a meeting, right? Do you judge people who work out less than you? Do you judge vegans? Like, it's all of it. Do you hate Trump supporters, right? It's every, all of that means that there's something inside of you that is also feeling threatened. What is that thing? Mm. What is that story? What is that thing? What is that feeling? Right? Oh, we talked about earlier how I've tried to really cut back by drinking. And one of the questions that I've, I've, I've asked myself that I got from Tar Brock, who's a spiritual teacher, is what am I unwilling to feel right now? Right? The minute that, like, you, everyone knows that, like, drinking witching hour, it's like five o'clock, like, ah, oh, I need a drink. What are you unwilling to feel in that moment, right? Because the drink mm -hmm. is just the solution. The feeling is persistent and, and alcohol is extremely pernicious because it just makes that feeling go away temporarily. And then you need more alcohol to just keep the feeling away. But what is that, you know, is it like, let's take someone that needs a drink at 5 p.m. It's like, oh, um, I'm very low self-esteem. So once again, my boss steamrolled me. Oh, I'm scared of rejection, so I didn't make those sales calls. Oh, this job is so fucking boring, but I can't, I don't know what I would like, so I'm just going to stay in it. Oh, uh, I need this job for money because we spend too much. Like, I could come up with a million other reasons why people drink at the end of the day, but those are all, the beauty of coaching is that every single one of those 
is a clue into your own thinking, into your own soul. I don't. I hate to use like super woo woo language like that. <laughs> and we have that, those moments every day, right? I think about it, it's like anytime the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Like I had once um, when I was before I did a lot of coaching, I like. I dropped my iPhone on the New York City subway, brand new iPhone, like iPhone six or something, and mm-hmm. and it cracked. And it never, you know, I think Asians probably are really good about not dropping their iPhones. Like <laughs> we have like really good cases, and, and we're just very careful. Like it's just, we still can't believe that we have something that costs a thousand dollars on us at all times. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I dropped my iPhone and I started berating myself in my head. You fucking mm-hmm. idiot. You know how expensive that was? That's like two hours of work and that's this. And you want to be an entrepreneur? You'll never be an entrepreneur if you can't like keep your iPhone in your pocket and you drop it and like, you know, I would berate myself. And so that was a classic example. The inner critic is a classic example of like the punishment doesn't fit the crime, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have a bunch of choices. You can kind of numb that feeling. Like you could do like, I don't know, you, you could go have a drink and be like, oh, let me cool down. You could go to any other numbing techniques, video games, you know, pornography, weed, like pick your favorite numbing source of numbing. You could unleash that anger onto someone else, right? Like that's something that I, like parents do often is like when they get mad at their Hmm. kids, it's actually not, the kid might have like done something mildly annoying, but it's really that pent up anger that was sourced somewhere else. Right, maybe yeah. it's like the iPhone thing. They're like, oh, like you finally like collect your cool, and then your kid comes home and you're like, Daddy, I lost, you know, I lost my sweatshirt. And you're like, What the fuck is wrong with you? You know, and you're like, Oh wait, that's me yelling at myself over the iPhone. Like what? Like the kids lose mm-hmm. sweatshirts all the time. It's probably in the lost and found. Um, so, I think that the beauty of coaching, and you don't coaching is just one modality: therapy and meditation and breath work and journalism and uh, journal, journalism journaling and um, what are some other ones uh, men's groups women's groups yeah. um, whatever having an, an auntie like elders you know those are all ways to you have to know that you have the problem right in this case the the the, yeah. the the father didn't even know that he had a problem he was too consumed by his false grief right Mm -hmm. so you have to know that you like if you beat yourself up because you dropped your iphone you have to even be self-aware enough to be like i think i have a problem or i think this is problematic most people wouldn't even pause to do that and then you'd be like oh wow i yelled at my kid because i broke my iphone and now my kid is like bearing the responsibility of that decision like you start to see how it really and then like i i like i drank like two extra drinks that night like you really start to see it's like why did i get so worked up about the iphone like yeah it sucks but you know like i don't know i i, I work at facebook like i can just buy another <laughs> I can buy another iphone you know like <laughs> the end of the world um and so i think that that to go back to your original question the coaching i think at the first place to just teach you to notice that you're doing this shit mm-hmm. so that would be in the dad's case it would to be like, you know, that you're carrying this grief so tightly that it's blinding you to everything else. And then the second thing is like, once you realize that you're carrying it, the thing so tightly, how is it impacting your actions? Like, are you going to open the door or not? Right? Yeah. And so I think that that's a very apt metaphor for modern life, both the most minute details, like I broke my phone 
and I'm angry or the more serious ones like I don't know if my marriage is right right and everything in between yeah a lot of what you're saying reminds me of uh this this coach I follow named Jerry Colonna he has a book called Reboot and he shares this story around uh like oh why was it that at work I snapped at my coworker for like rejecting my idea or whatever and it's like oh it's it's not that they rejected my idea it's they're speaking to that kid in me who never felt accepted or loved and it's showing up in my workplace yeah. now and it it use it kind of uses the workplace or like leadership or like being an executive and uses that as a medium for therapy of like you should uh look at that like yeah. investigate that a little bit and ask yourself why you're reacting that way and i think the way you're you're what you're doing right now is creating examples of hey like maybe you feel this in your daily life and maybe there's some things that you can start exploring for yourself like maybe it's not the work that's stressing you out maybe there's something deeper there yeah and and two three things one i was on his podcast twice so i get put those in there's, there's like some yeah. of the most epic episodes like one is like you see me really 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 raw with um it's about like I, the whole thing is about why i fear dying like my own death uh -huh. um so it's very intense um it probably was one of the highest like it wasn't even my content but the most dms like to to piece of content ratio was that first episode on reboot it was a years ago not five years ago it was um the second thing was uh, absolutely, I encourage everyone to pay attention, but, but with one very, very important caveat is to do it with like curiosity and playfulness, not uh, like yes. um, uh, criticism, not judgment self, self -criticism, or, yeah, criticism and, and, yeah. and judgment. And the third thing I always say is like, everyone has these, even the most enlightened monks have this. Like they're gonna be jealous. They're gonna get angry. Like, the most enlightened people will have these. So know that if you're like, oh man, I have so many of these things that Kay's talking about. It's like, everyone has them. They're human. That's, that's part of being human. The beautiful question is like, assuming that everyone has them, how do you dance with them? I think that's a great place to wrap up that portion. And got some closing questions for you. Can, yeah. We can call it. Do it. All right. What's a... Uh, I mean, this is going back to business, but yeah. I think you have a lot to share. So what's one opinion you have about business you think people would disagree with? Hmm. What's one opinion you have about business? Oh, um, that you can truly be happy by having career success. I don't think that happiness comes from even the greatest career success. Ask our friend, Mr. Musk. Yeah. I'm going to let that one sit there a little bit. <laughs> All right. What's, uh, what's one impactful piece of advice you've been given? I think uh, I would go back to Tara Brock, the, the thing I said about drinking. What am, I, what am I unwilling to feel right now? So anytime, mm -hmm. so much of, like, let's say like, there's a hard decision to be made at work. What am I unwilling to feel, right? The fear of rejection, the fear of failure, it's like, it's a very powerful question that can kind of get you, can draw that connection. To what's yeah. really going on? Yeah, I need to ask myself about some emails I need to send. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned you read you uh, you read a lot. You take in a lot of information. What's what's one book you'd recommend more people read? 
Oh, this is always such a hard question because books, they find you at the right moment. So the book that's finding me at the right moment now is not a book that, that will find someone else at the, at the right moment. But um, What's finding you right now? What's finding me right now? Right now, it's all of the work of uh, Pema Chodron. So I would say there's a book called mm-hmm. When Things Fall Apart. That is really the beauty that that book is really making me see is that we always want things to be binary. Like I want to have like a, a, a great career. I'll tell this, um, I'll tell this story of like how you want something and then you get the thing and it turns out to be annoying. I'm whispering it cause I'm, I'm, mm. I'm projecting onto my wife, but my wife was, was getting a little bit annoyed by how much I was drinking. And so mm-hmm. I could imagine that she's like, God, things would be just better if Kate drank less. So I stopped drinking. And so you would, she'd be like, oh, I got exactly what I got for. But now I exercise three hours a day with all that extra <laughs> time and energy. Like I do two a days at 44. Um, and That's impressive. And, sh- and I could see that's just, it's just annoying to live with someone like that. Like, can you imagine like a, you're living with your, your roommates doing two a days at 44, like you, you'd feel shitty about yourself just for, <laughs> by virtue of not doing it. Um, yeah. and so I could, so I think the, so, so I tie that back to family children. It's like, it's, it's just like the thing that you think that you want also has its downsides. And so you have to be mm-hmm. comfortable. She uses this term all the time called groundlessness, which is like, if you're in a phase where your husband's drinking a lot, you've just got to you like you just you know embrace the ground. It doesn't mean to to be passive about it, but also don't believe that that is the cause of everything bad. And again, drinking might not be the right example because you know I don't want to dismiss like the experiences of alcoholics and 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 people who really suffer from the disease. Here, it's more like a a bored dad that drinks too much on the weekends. Um, but that is what Pema Chodron has really, really, really made us, made me realize is like, oh, you like, you know, even now I'm like, oh, I want to have this like very s- simple life as a content creator where I just do really small projects and all that. And like, oh, but um, I'm already like, damn, man, you know, we had some nice recurring revenue when we had info products like every week, just like it wasn't a ton. It's like 300 one week to 2000 the next week, 50. But it was just like every week money came in and I'm like, ooh, I for, I didn't realize how nice that was at the time. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe it's like a more enlightened way of saying that it really makes you comfortable with the fallacy of the grass always or the, the, the truth behind the grass always being greener. Yeah, there's always some sort of trade-off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great place to end this. Kay, where can people find you on the internet? Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to this. Uh, it's probably not what you thought you signed up for. So uh, I tried to give in, give, you know, the copywriting story, the mar- you know, so I tried to give you some marketing. But, but, but know this. Know that if you are, the more self-aware you become, the better marketer you'll become. I guarantee you that. Um, so where can people find uh, radreads.co, sign up to the newsletter. That's kind of the main hub. Uh, in order of activity, uh, most active on Twitter, although that's 
that's my first name, Kemerid. Um, we'll put it in the show notes because the Kemerid spelling yeah. is too too much. Um, although my Twitter usage is is really atrophying now. It's just kind of a ghost town. feels feels a little sad. Playing around Instagram, TikTok, um, and trying to post a video a week on YouTube. Awesome. Okay, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for making the time, man. Thank you, David. Huge pleasure.